0: Welcome to the show today, guys. We have a very exciting guest for you, a behemoth in the pro-life space and movement who has been contending politically for the unborn for many years. Clark Forsyth is Senior Counsel at Americans United for Life. Um, You may not know of that group. If you don't, Clark's going to give you an overview of the wonderful work they've been doing for so long. He has served there for 27 years, including founding and directing the American United for Life Project in Law and Bioethics has served as vice president for six years, overseeing their national litigation and legislation strategy, and served as president for 10 years. Clark has argued cases before the federal and state courts and has testified before Congress and state legislatures. He is a leading policy strategist in bioethical issues and has published more than 15 law review articles and book chapters on bioethics and law. He's taught at Wheaton, Trinity International University, and lectured at Marquette Notre Dame and Ava Maria School of Law. Clark joins me today to discuss his beautiful book that you have to read if you haven't, called Abuse of Discretion, the inside story of Roe v. Wade. We're going to discuss the Mississippi case that could overturn Roe, why Roe v. Wade is unsettled, while the secular progressive movement is losing their ever-loving minds, and the momentum in the states to end the sacrament of Satan, abortion in America. Buckle up, you're in for a treat. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Clark welcome to the show Thanks Seth good to be with you Thanks for having me Absolutely, man. Thank you for your wonderful work and and your wonderful work, particularly in this book, which I can't think of a better time to have had you on. Yes. Um, you, you've been a a prospect guest that I've intended to have on for some time. But boy, have the uh, the stars, I guess, been aligning in this political moment um, yes. to present the best opportunity we've seen since mm-hmm. Casey. Um, to actually yep, yep. begin taking down and reversing this wicked decision. Um, but before yes. we dive into your book and what's happening right now, Clark, uh, I, I, I like people to get to know uh, my guests, and you're such a treasure in the pro life movement. But a lot of our guests who listen to the show, they're not pro life activists, Clark. They're not like, you know, pro life movement warriors. Uh, they're yeah. just like Christians who love the Lord and like have been really mm. awakened and broken over abortion in, in the recent past few years, and they want to do more to defend life, but they may not be aware of your name. So give us a little bit of background on how God called you into the fight for life, um, and then what AUL does for life in America. Sure.
1: Um, well, my my walk, my, my calling to this work started probably in the 1980 presidential election where the abortion issue was debated between, uh, as you may recall, Reagan and Carter and John Anderson. And up up to that time, I really hadn't thought about the issue, and I I was in college, so I hadn't yet studied the Roe v. Wade decision. But um, I was supporting John Anderson, and someone challenged me, "How can you be? How can you support John Anderson? He's he's pro-abortion, he's pro-abortion rights." And uh, that was the first time that someone challenged me to think about the issue. And uh, I mean, I'd grown up in a Christian household, but hadn't really thought about much about politics or about that. Um, and I read uh, the great book by uh, C. Everett Koop and Francis Schaefer, whatever happened yes. to the human race? Then yes. I got into law school. I read the Roe versus Wade decision. I realized how terrible that was, and uh, so I started to volunteer for Americans United for Life when I got out of law school and joined as a staff counsel in on um, February of '85. So I've been with AUL for 37 years. And uh, AUL is 50 years old. We were started, founded in 1971, in August of 71, before the Roe v. Wade decision, um, but but saw that it was coming down the pike and that the court might do what it did uh, because of its prior decisions. And uh, so we've been working in the courts and legislatures and in the media and scholarships since 71 on the span of life issues, not just abortion, but because Roe versus Wade is such a, a an evil decision, um, a, a, a self-inflicted wound by the court, uh, one of the most, uh, if not the most misguided decision, wrongful decision the court's made in its 200 plus year history. Uh, yeah. We've always focused on overturning Roe um, because the court should never have taken over the issue. And uh, it suffered for, for 48, 49 years since then, because it's such a uh, terrible decision.
0: Yeah, yes, that's right. And, uh, Clark, there are, there have been f- there have been few voices that I found as effective and powerful as yours going into the history of our, all this. Obviously, Hadley Arcus and his book Natural yeah. Rights and the yeah. Right to Choose mm-hmm. is a phenomenal yeah. book. It's a book I recommend people read once a year. Uh, but yeah. he doesn't deal nearly as much as you do with the history of Roe. He's, he's talking more about their legal efforts with born alive infant right. protections and bans on mm-hmm. partial birth abortion. And it's a phenomenal read. But your yeah. book, Abuse of Discretion, the inside story of Roe versus Wade, deals specifically with this case, which the level of ignorance on is, is, is pretty unreal. Um, in yes. fact, there was a, a poll, there was a study I came across the other day, actually f- uh, cited by Arcus in his book, um, mm-hmm. Clark. That found that one in ten people could give an accurate account of the Roe versus Wade decision. Uh, now that won't surprise. That's ten percent. Yeah, right. Yeah, and of course that doesn't surprise you. It it, it it's unreal. When I, I've had pastors uh, tell me before when I've spoken in their churches or events, Clark, that when I said abortion is legal through all nine months of pregnancy for any reason or no reason at all, because of the Doe versus Bolton invention of health defined so broadly, you could drive a Mack truck through it. I've had pastors and other people call me a liar, and how dare I lie to their congregation or their audience? And I'm like, the, the level of ignorance is absolutely unreal. And if it's happening mm-hmm. with the shepherds and in the church, y- you can only imagine the level of ignorance in the broader secular society. So because yeah. of all of that and because of how these um, you know, issues are aligning in these next few months, I wanted you— mm-hmm. To just kind of teach us, I have some very specific questions, brother. We're gonna talk about Della Penna and Cyril Means and some oh, of these right. figures. But yes. give us your opening comments on what led you to write this book um and uh, and, and why other people should read it in this season.
1: Well, I've been i been working for AUL for 20 years, uh, and I'd I'd done a lot of research and writing about the Roe v. Wade decision, but Sometime uh, around 2007-2008, uh, I, uh, I, I just I was looking for I think maybe the transcript of the Doe versus Bolton argument in the Supreme Court, and I was asking myself, we still don't really know why the court did this. Why did they reach such a uh, a, a, a sweeping decision? Uh, why did they uh, make so many mistakes? What went on uh, behind the scenes? Uh, so i looked for uh the oral arguments in both the decisions you can still find the audio and the transcript of the original arguments at oye.org o-y-e-z dot okay you can listen wow. to the original um and uh I, once i studied those um i then asked myself well, what uh, Justice Blackman's papers or Chief Justice Burger's are they available or Justice Rehnquist, Justice White's? Can I find the justices' papers? And I uh, uh, eventually was able to find uh, the papers of eight of the nine justices who voted in Roe versus Wade, all but Chief wow. Justice Warren Burger's, which are still under seal and uh, I guess will be released to the public in about three years. But I was able wow. to then look at the papers of eight of the nine. And uh, they just tell a completely different history than the public's been you know, told before by wow. pro-abortion scholars or academics or the media. And so I think the uh, abuse of discretion is the most important book written uh, since Roe because of the release of these papers. And I was lucky and gratified to be able to access them uh, and wow. tell the story about what went on behind the scenes in the two years before the Roe v. Wade decision and how they fell into such a terrible, uh, wrong-headed, yeah. disastrous decision.
0: That's right. Uh, and, you know, there was a great film recently in the last year, Clark, um, about the Roe v.ersus Wade. I think it was called Roe v.ersus Wade. Uh, yeah. And we actually had a screening of that film at our church here at Godspeed Calvary Chapel in Thousand Oaks. Um, and we've, we've done other uh, screenings of pro-life films. Wonderful film, but it, it doesn't mm-hmm. touch the depth that you dive mm-hmm. into in this book, and I, and especially for conservatives, or those who claim to yeah. be conservatives in this moment. I mean, if if Mitt Romney is a conservative, I don't know what the hell I am, Clark. I mean, you had Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, and Mitt Romney. I mean, Mitt Romney should be like a cuss word now, in my opinion. It's such a dirty word, um, who calls himself a pro-life conservative and just voted to confirm Ketanji Jackson, the most radical Supreme Court nominee in American history, bar none. Um, who clerked for Stephen Breyer when Stephen Breyer joined Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the other liberals to try to overturn the ban on partial birth abortions. Uh, And and now we're seeing the infanticide conversation increasingly happen in America right now with decriminalizing infanticide bills in Maryland and California that they're pushing and the the partial birth abortion murdered babies in D.C. that were recovered and photographed and now we're exposing this evil. Um, But the the level of ignorance even amongst conservatives who claim to be pro-life is astounding. And I talked to some of these Conservatives, whether they're pundits or thinkers, or they're just run-of-the-mill Americans who call themselves conservatives who have no idea about the inside story and how all this came about. So, yeah. um, was, there's a lot we could reporter. talk. Yeah, there's a lot we could talk about there. Um, I have a couple places I'd like to start, but what sure. would you say would be the most important one or two takeaways from this book? Um, that 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 addresses the biggest ignorance. What would you say is the, a couple of the biggest um, examples of ignorance in the public in understanding what Roe v. Wade and Doe versus Bolton said?
1: Well, there's also the there's also the ignorance of the justices. I mean, if you go back and mm. look at the papers and listen to the arguments and read the transcript, you realize that they didn't have the foggiest idea about abortion. Um, right. So let me start there. Um, because, uh, you know, the public, uh, you know, ignorance flows from the justices' ignorance. And uh, if you go back, uh, you'll see that um, that there was a crisis in the court in 71, when the court first addressed abortion. Uh, there were nine justices, but two, uh, Justices Black and Harlan, uh, retired uh, abruptly in September of 71, two, two months before they were going to hear the arguments in the Roe and Doe cases um, because of ill health. So that reduced the number of justices to seven. It flipped the balance of the court and it temporarily empowered a a temporary majority of four justices to decide to try to sweep away the abortion laws before those vacancies could be uh, filled. And those four were very willful. They wanted, just as they had struck down the contraception laws, they wanted to strike down the abortion laws. And they set about doing that as quickly as they could. But they had no evidence, no evidence about abortion, a history of abortion, implications, health impacts, what abortion was, they had none of that. They had no information about the history of our, we have an Anglo American heritage protecting life, going back hundreds of years. And the justices had no clue about that. Um, wow. So, um, you know, those facts were lost on the justices, and so, you know, it's not surprising that uh, the Roe v. Wade opinion is so lackluster, so defective, so uh, wrongheaded, and, uh, you know, media ignorance and public indra- ignorance has flowed from that. Right. Um, and until I, I published Abuse of Discretion in 2013, uh, that history, these facts, just were not out in the public. And, um, um, you know, so it's been t- since 2013 that all that went on behind the scenes has been available now to the public. Wow. Um, so um. I think I the think lack of understanding of history, you talk about public ignorance, just knowing that we have a, a, an Anglo-American heritage, legal heritage that protected human life, uh, prenatal human beings uh, from the earliest time that they, you know, that medicine, primitive medicine, could understand the prenatal human being to be alive that goes back right. hundreds of years. Uh, you know, the public doesn't know about that. And, Blackstone
0: um, commentaries.
1: All that, all that. You know, Means, you, you talked about, I mentioned to you, Cyril Means. Cyril Means got the history terribly wrong. He was just ignorant of the history, but he foisted that on the court, and Justice Blackman just absorbed everything uh, Cyril Means said as the general counsel of NARAL, what uh, then was called the right. National Association for the Repeal of Abortion Laws, uh, Blackman just adopted everything that Cyril Means said—you uh, know, six or seven or eight mistakes of history in law, and law—and uh, from his that mistaken history, he said, "Well, there's a, a right to abortion," That's and right. um, and uh, uh, none of the justices knew what the history was, even the dissenters. Um, so, um, you know, this is released to the public in January '73, and most of the medicine, most of the history, most of our heritage is just completely washed away. Right. And um, and it's it's just a tragedy.
0: A lot of people um, don't even know the names Lawrence or Larry later and Cyril Means Jr., but these guys were pals, uh, Clark, and and Larry later has been called, correctly so, kind of like the godfather of abortion, or the father of abortion, or the father of the sexual revolution. Of course, there there are others as well, but he was one of those degenerates right at the very top, Uh, and yet many people don't know that the justices cited um, Cyril Means' historical fiction work on the history of abortion multiple times in in roe versus wade as this appeal to historical authority allegedly um to to justify their decision can you talk a little bit about that Uh, some of this historical fiction what were some of the claims uh that were made by serial means that were then enshrined in our abortion jurisprudence that were complete fantasies
1: well um Imagine yourself uh, back in like 1700 or 1800. Um, there's no there's no modern medical technology. There's no modern medicine. Um, doctors didn't even treat women in pregnancy. Uh, midwives, you know, female midwives did. There's no stethoscope. Right. There's no nothing. So how would you even determine that a woman's pregnant or that she has a live baby in her? Um, the law latched upon the most reliable evidence, which was what they called quickening, yeah. uh, which is you know, the mother's first fetal, you know, mo- a sense of fetal movement, yeah. which uh, you know, happens around 16 to 18 weeks. But before that time, there was no reliable evidence. So uh, only at 16 to 18 weeks could uh, you know, women and midwives determine that there was reliable evidence that a woman was even pregnant or that she had a live child wow. in her. Right.
0: Um,
1: and so instead of understanding that medical context, Means said, well, before 16 weeks, there was a right to abortion. Uh, because the law didn't kick in until 16 or 18 weeks or until quickening. So before that time, there's a right. Now there's no evidence that there was a right, but because there was an absence of law or criminal law, they said, well, there's a right. And men just swallowed that. Wow." Um, and then, um, you know, imagine again a time of prim- primitive medical uh, of medicine, and you know what happens after 16 to 18 weeks until delivery. Um, uh, there was there was a, it was a time of high infant mortality, primitive medicine. So how do you know the the you know the baby's alive at, at that uh, after that time? Um, and the, uh, the law said that, well, we won't treat the killing of an uh, unborn child as a homicide, the killing of a human being, uh, if it's stillborn, because how do we know that it wasn't killed from natural causes or died from natural causes in the right. womb? How do we know that it died from human causes or criminal causes or some kind of assault? Um, so uh, we're not going to treat the killing as a homicide, which was invariably a capital offense unless we see the baby outside after delivery and could look at it physically and distinguish between natural causes or criminal causes. Wow. Um, And so that's Blackman, you know, Means says, that means there's no human being, there's no person before birth. Wow. And Blackman said, okay, we've got a right to abortion up till birth because the law really didn't treat the child as a human being until birth. But birth didn't mean 40 weeks term delivery. It meant any time outside. So in fact, the, the law said that we're gonna treat this, this child as a human being in the womb, and if there's a prenatal injury in the womb at any time, and then death after birth, that's a homicide. So they connected the human being wow. outside with the human being inside. And they said, that's the same entity. That's the same being. And um, again, that was completely lost on the justices. And it's, um, and, 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 you know, from there, they created a right to abortion for any reason at any time until birth.
0: Wow. (laughs) Uh, Clark, I often uh, cite, you know, abortion industry leaders and abortionists and thinkers um, to to make my own points. And one of those most powerful voices is, was Alan Guttmacher, right? Uh, yes. One of the former presidents of Planned Parenthood, oh. the namesake of the Guttmacher Institute, which is Planned Parenthood's oh. statistical research branch today. And in his book, Life in the Making, Clark, on page three, he says, uh, regarding whether people knew when human life begins, he says, this all seems so simple and evident that it's hard to picture a time that it wasn't part of the common knowledge. Now, Life in the Making was written in the 70s, Clark. So when people say, oh, there's no under, you know, no one can agree on when human life begins. And there's actually, actually, you know, tons of biologists and doctors say we can't know. Uh, Well, no, leading abortionists and abortion industry lackeys have been admitting this for years. And I thought that this was very helpful. You cited Justice Tom Clark in your book, Retired Supreme Court Justice, Mm-hmm. Um, who wrote a very influential law review article advocating for legalized abortion in 1969? And you yeah. make the point in your book, Clark, that this was quoted um, repeatedly by Justice Blackman in Roe, and one line in particular that speaks to this manipulation of language, uh, mm-hmm. this the this the euphemistic um, necessity. Of the abortion industry to describe abortion as something other than the taking of a human life and as the victim as something other than a human being. And he says to say that life is present at conception is to give recognition to the potential rather than the actual wow. Mm-hmm. the actual human being but he says the law deals in reality not obscurity the known rather than the unknown meaning we can't really know maybe it's a biological life like today squishy conservatives say a biological male which it assume which is to insinuate that there's something other than a biological male it's the same thing here i guess it's it's like human dna it's not like a biological life but it's not like a human or a person right right the separating of humans and persons which the Hekerrich did in Germany and we did in Dred Scott and now we did in 1973. Um, well, so well
1: Seth, as, as you know, um, you know even if there was ignorance in the 50s or 60s about conception that uh, that ignorance went away with uh, IVF in vitro fertilization in the 1970s when that was discovered. And uh, I mean, even before Roe versus Wade, there were states that were protecting the unborn child from conception, but that legal protection has exploded since Roe versus Wade through prenatal injury law and wrongful death law and fetal homicide law. I mean, today we've got 31 states uh, with a fetal homicide law that protects the unborn child from conception, 31. Last year, a year ago, Wyoming became the 31st state with a fetal homicide law that says, uh, you know, if a if a woman is walking, a pregnant woman is walking down a street, across yeah. uh, in a street, a drunk driver careens down the street, strikes her, kills her, or kills her unborn child, that's a double homicide at any time after conception. Yep. Um, yep. So, 31 states, three fifths of the states in this country now have one of these laws. So, it's no longer speculation. It's no yep. longer imagination. It's no longer abstract philosophy it's
0: the law yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, so, so no one can claim ignorance today
0: that's right well they can o- they only claim ignorance um, Clark about the humanity of the unborn child um, when they want to kill her uh, as yeah. soon as you resolve to kill her suddenly there's it's so obscure uh, there's no clarity there's no consensus but um, so I, mean, I think we, we obviously know what they, what they really intend here. Um, but let me add to your point, uh, Clark. The United Nations um, has said for years that in any country where they have legalized capital punishment, capital punishment cannot be performed on a pregnant woman. Now, what distinguishes the woman uh, who is deserving of... Uh, a capital punishment for a crime she committed in one state from another woman who committed a crime deserving of capital punishment in another state. Well, the fact that in the bodies of one of those women is a human being. And there's the international acknowledgement that you don't kill innocent human beings, right? It's the same thing with thalidomide. You know, you can't get th- thalidomide. Your baby might be born without arms or legs. Well, why? The fetus has no right to my body. That's what Roe v. Wade taught me. So the cognitive dissonance is unreal. Um, yeah, that, and I, I appreciate UN, you. That
1: UN position is uh, is an old position back that goes back in the law, you know, centuries. So um, it's it's that is nothing new, uh, but it's good that the UN at least uh, recognizes it. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, you, um, go ahead. Those those were, I think, you know, some of the most significant uh, mistakes that the court made in in Roe versus Wade, and I think we today have a very different majority on the court. Uh, that is not beholden to Roe versus Wade, doesn't have its le- uh, its its legacies, uh, you know, uh, founded in Roe versus Wade, and is willing to take a much more objective uh, uh, view of the, the law and the history and the medicine.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, let's uh, let's turn Clark to the this current political moment and the debate over viability. Because you have a whole chapter on that in your book about yeah. why, why this line of viability, which the, initially the justices, and you, I'd love for you to speak to this, Clark. Initially, they were, they were talking about 12 weeks, the end of the first trimester. And then they suddenly pushed it out to viability rather than 12 weeks. You know, yeah. why this strange line? How do you justify the line that you selected? Um, I just quoted Peter Singer um, on a recent episode uh, Clark with my friend Jonathan Keller who leads the California Family Council uh, here in California. And Peter Singer said years ago in, in one of his, his philosophy books, uh, you know, the Princeton professor who yeah. defends infanticide, and he said yeah. that the liberal search for a morally crucial dividing line between mm. the newborn baby and the fetus has failed to yield any event or stage yeah. of development which mm. can bear the weight of separating those with a right to life From those who lack such a right, so there's the acknowledgement that we can't really pick that morally crucial dividing line that actually makes sense that we can actually justify between at any point of prenatal development or perinatal or after the baby is born. So, you know, with this debate with the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health lawsuit, hoping that we'll overturn Roe versus Wade, the 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 debates with today's justices earlier this year regarding this point of viability this goes way back so talk to how the yeah. supreme court came to select viability as a significant dividing line because for our listeners just as a reminder guys states cannot regulate abortion before viability but they're allowed to to some degree after viability so can you give us some of the history on that
1: yeah in in 71 and uh, 72 when the court was uh, deliberating uh Those, when the court was reduced to seven justices because of the two retirements, and it flipped the balance of the court, uh, the four justices uh, wanted to sweep away the abortion laws. And so it was a very result-oriented decision. Basically, they decided, we're gonna sweep away the abortion laws and then decide how we're gonna justify it, how we're gonna explain it, how we're gonna write our opinion. And so they imagined there would be a right to abortion, but where where to draw lines? Uh, are we gonna what lines are we gonna draw? And as you as you mentioned, Seth, um, for about a year in the deliberations, they were assuming they draw the line at twelve weeks. Uh, obviously, that was arbitrary, um, but that just was kind of a, 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 a adopted assumption for. Uh, A considerable period of time. And then Hmm. they reargued the cases uh, back to back in uh, October of 72 for the second time when Justice Powell and Justice Rehnquist had joined the court. So it was a full court of nine. And even at that time, you can go back and listen to the oral arguments, you can listen to the audio, read the transcript. The word viability is never mentioned once in the second round of arguments. Um, and uh, only thereafter, did uh, behind the scenes, did the justices start talking about what line they were going to draw, because no party, no attorney, no friend of the court, uh, no special interest group had urged the justices to adopt a viability rule or the viability line. Um, but a couple of the justices prevailed upon Justice Blackman, who's writing the decision to adopt viability, and voila. Uh, that became the position. Um, wow. And so um, one of the things we should mention is is Dorothy Beasley, who argued the case for Georgia and argued personhood and argued in defense of Georgia's law against abortion. And um, I talked with Dor- uh, Dorothy Beasley while I was writing the book, and she said viability was never, ever mentioned. It was just shocking when the opinion comes out they they adopted this viability line because no one had ever talked about it. Um, yeah. And it just shows how arbitrary and capricious the court was. They never justified it then, and they've never never justified it since. I mean, it was almost right. like they would adopted a, a Peter Singer rationale. Uh, yep. You know, we're gonna adopt viability because uh, no other line kind of makes sense. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, and that was it. And that's, that's the only rationale the court has ever given the country about the viability rule. Yeah. And um, uh, 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 the Dobbs arguments, uh, as you know, uh, took place last December 1. And for the first time, justices like Justice Alito, ask, uh, and, ju- and, he- and Chief Justice Roberts as well, asked some penetrating questions about where did this viability line come from? Um, it wasn't even at stake in the Roe K- decision or in the Casey decision of '92. Where did this come from, and how did we ever justify it? Uh, and that's the first time in in 49 years that the justices have ever seriously questioned the viability right. rule.
0: Yeah, that's right. So
1: we're at we're at a new place. We're at a new yeah. time.
0: Yeah, that's good, and that's why so many uh, conservative jurists, um, whom I respect as well, yourself, Robbie George, um, and, and many others, uh, I think came away encouraged after those hearings. i um, yeah. hearing the level of skepticism from the justices yeah. in regards yeah. to um, upholding uh, or striking down the level of skepticism they had in striking down the, the Mississippi law, meaning they're, incur- they're, they're signals that they would likely allow the 15-week abortion ban um, to stand. And when you even have that coming from someone like John Roberts, um, who oh. has stabbed the unborn in the back uh, in a jurisprudential way multiple times, <laughs> it's not been a consistent friend of the unborn. Now you start getting maybe a little bit encouraged with what we're going to see. But yeah, the vi- viability has never made sense. And it, it represents such sloppy thinking from the highest court in the land, because viability changes every few years, every decade or so, as, as we're allowed to make unborn children viable with new scientific and medical advancements that enable us to save children at earlier stages. Additionally, if a pregnant woman is on a plane at, uh, at 24 weeks and she leaves Reagan Dulles, um, I guess her child is viable. Um, at 24 weeks but then she flies to Kenya okay and when she enters international uh, airspace now her now her baby's not viable because she doesn't have access to the type of life-saving treatment and and medicine that would enable the child to be viable it it just it starts becoming so stupid um, when you start recognizing how sloppy this thinking was
1: Well, the the medicine is one thing, and the medical advances are one thing, but there's also the legal changes in our country since 1973. I mean, the court uh, announced viability, and the lower courts have strictly applied it against the states since 73. But in other areas of the law, like prenatal injury law, like wrongful death, like fetal homicide, the law has just left viability in the dust. Again, there are 31 states with fetal homicide laws that have no viability rule or limit uh, because they provide con- c- uh, c- protection all the way back to conception. So right. the law in, in other areas has simply left the, vi- the, the Roe viability laws as, as, as a, uh, an orphan yep. and have uh, regarded it as irrelevant in yep. uh, legal protection. Yeah. So, um, uh, and the justices know that as well. Um, so, uh, as you mentioned, uh, you know the, the the Dobbs arguments on December one were encouraging, because the justices, unlike '92 and Casey, they weren't fix fixated on the nuances. Of the Pennsylvania law back then or the Mississippi law now. They didn't uh, ask too many questions about the 15 week limit in Mississippi or its nuances. They really focused, especially the six most conservative, on how do you justify Roe and Casey? And uh, that's the first time since 92 and Casey that they've done that. So it was encouraging for those reasons as well. But if I might, I, I, I think that. It's you know what, whatever can be said about Chief Justice Roberts since he joined the court in 2005, he didn't he's never had a majority until now that was abortion skeptical, and now he has six justices I think or five beyond beside himself who are skeptical, and so he's never had a uh, had a majority since 1992 or since he joined the court, and um, and and that's essential, you know if you don't have a majority you're not going anywhere. Yeah. So, um, you know, now's the time, and, and the time is different than at any time since he's joined the court, and obviously, he realizes that.
0: Yeah. I'll, uh, I will push back a little bit on you there, Clark, and, and uh, remind everyone, as, as you remember, with Louisiana, with, uh, um, uh, was it Whole Woman's Health? Uh, well, you had a Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt in Texas, but the Louisiana law in 20— 19, uh, 2020, that just yeah. said that, yeah, 2020, that just literally, I mean, you want to talk about a common sense piece of legislation that that, pro-cho- that moderate pro-choice Democrats of the 80s would have gotten behind, which just said that, um, that abortion clinics had to meet the same um, medical requirements as any other ambulatory surgical center, and that those performing abortions had to have admitting privileges at a local hospital to ensure continuity of care for the woman who might be injured during an abortion and 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 then they roll out this lawsuit and the abortion industrial complex you know girds up their secular degenerate loins rents their garments and screams bloody murder uh well why is this a problem if abortion is healthcare and abortion is surgery then why shouldn't your surgeons have to meet the same medical requirements as any other surgeon why because as you remember clark in louisiana they had ophthalmologists performing abortions so the abortion industry knew that many of their abortionists weren't going to be able to meet the requirements that the law was going to make them to meet all of that to make this point clark who ruled against that who ruled against having abortion clinics that have admitting privileges roberts (laughs) and had he joined the conservatives it would have been upheld
1: If you go back to uh, Texas's law, uh, which was the same sort of law in, in uh, 2018, he said "Starry Decisis." Had, yeah, <laughs> he, uh, well, he had um, he had dissented from the court striking down that, but in uh, the Louisiana case, uh, what what you describe is the first part of his opinion. The second part of his opinion is when is when he kind of veers off uh, and does a head fake and says, "But I'm not going to apply that opinion anymore." to any future case, uh, and he leaves uh, abortion law uh, in tatters and undecided. And it's that undecided or unsettled state that uh, we can now rely upon to show that uh, the Roe v. Wade decision and Planned Parenthood versus Casey are radically unsettled 49 years later, in part because of what Roberts did in his uh, own separate opinion in, uh, in the Louisiana case. So, yeah. um, uh, and, and that's uh, I think one of the points that needs to be made about why we're where we are now with the Dobbs case is that, um, uh, you know, the cause for life in America has never let Roe versus Wade be settled uh, because of agitation in the states, because of agitation in the courts, because of scholarly criticism, because of the march for life. Because yeah. of uh, you know the proliferation of pregnancy care centers, um, all right. of this agitation has kept Roe versus Wade unsettled, and that's why the Dobbs case is before the court today.
0: That's right. Yeah, I appreciate that, Clark. Um, we are we are at this this uh, breaking point. Uh, liberalism seems to be malfunctioning, doesn't it? And the the promises of the secular moral revolution. Um, are, are quickly fading away. It reminds me of Anthony Kennedy's uh, famous mystery passage in Planned Parenthood v. Casey. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of uh, the universe and the of existence and meaning and of the mystery of human life. Um, to which I've always asked, uh, Clark, what if my understanding of the mystery of human life and existence uh, is the opposite of Anthony Kennedy's understanding yeah. of the mystery of human life and existence. So, who's wins out? Right. Well, I mean, he was just ex- expressing um, through allegedly high language uh, relativism, right? Because uh, if my meaning runs positivism. counter to your meaning, yeah. yeah, who who's win? Legal positivism, yeah. right? Yeah. Rather than yeah. than natural law. And and so it yeah. reminds me of this this line that you quote Joseph Delapena in your book, Clark. Um, who, Joseph Delapeno, a professor who wrote the best book debunking the historical myths that yeah. the abortion industry weaved to justify Roe versus Wade. And, you, sa- and he sa- you quote him saying, Until law professor Cyril Means discovered the supposed liberty in 1968, no statement in any legal or other document expressed the claim that anyone had a liberty to abort. Uh, to which I would say, Your liberty ends where my nose begins, or Your liberty yeah. ends when a human baby. Uh, begins.
1: <laughs> yeah, Seth, I'm glad you brought up Della Penna because, um, I mean, he's written the, uh, a massive history um, that's just so well researched and reasoned, telling the whole history of um, his- historical, social, legal protection for the unborn child, you know, at the, uh, you know, at, to the greatest extent possible, given contemporary medical understanding. As medicine yes. developed, legal protection developed. As medicine advanced, legal protection advanced. Um, and um, uh, people need to read Della Pena uh, as well.
0: Yes, yes, that's good. Um, uh, before we wind down here and discuss um, June and some of the arguments. Um, I appreciate your comments regarding fetal homicide laws in, in so many of our states, because I think that that cognitive dissonance, that discrepancy, that lack of consistency, yeah. um, often proves the more deeper held and sinister premises of progressivism and of the pro-choice movement. Um, because how can you resolve that discrepancy? Oh, She got murdered by someone while she was pregnant. Double homicide. Wait. And the pro-lifer says, but she can kill the baby through point of birth herself, and it's liberty, according to Anthony Kennedy. That's women's rights. That's reproductive justice, or to quote Joe Biden's new euphemism at the State of the Union, maternal justice. You see he coined a new euphemism the other day, Clark. He called abortion maternal justice justice. Um, interesting so you're admitting that they're mothers thank you for that Um, how do you resolve this discrepancy well the left will say something like this Clark well in the case of the fetal homicide thing Clark the reason why you're so stupid and you don't get that is because she wanted the baby she was planning to carry that baby to term a third party murdered her and the baby so it's a double homicide oh thank you for admitting that you believe human life is only valuable when wanted
1: Well, of course, that's, as you know, Seth, that's uh, one version of feminism. And uh, (laughs) thankfully today, uh, you know, there is a growing contingent of pro-life feminists. uh, And um, in the Dobbs case, um, they filed a a wonderful brief uh, filed by Helen Alvarez of George Mason, Scalia Law School and others, pointing out that um, there's no empirical evidence that Abortion helps women. And it doesn't contribute to their physical health. Uh, it doesn't contribute to equality. It doesn't contribute to educational or career advancement. And uh, you know, a brief like that was never filed in Roe v. Wade. It was really never filed in Casey in 1992. So, um, you know, I'm grateful to them to uh, to uh, at this time and place in history to right. tell the court for the first time. Uh, that the emperor has no clothes, and that <laughs> right. the court has never been able to justify a right to abortion uh, based upon its, its help to women. Uh, there's right. just no yeah. evidence for that.
0: That's right. And feminists We're- have to be pro-life. If feminism means anything, uh, it has to be pro-life because feminism doesn't murder women. It doesn't murder females, Um, and so I've always said you've never met a a pro-choice feminist, but anyways. uh, Clark, as we wind down, uh, I'd love for you to talk just a little bit, um, give us a little bit of a lay of the legal landscape in the state levels right now. What's happening at the state levels? Yeah. Uh, why Roe versus Wade is unsettled? Why this decision coming in June that we're praying is the correct and just decision? It has created this legal environment where states are starting to gird up their loins, and and maybe Republicans who didn't do much for the preborn anymore, they have no more excuse. It's it's go time. It's time for everyone to find their place on the wall. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Um, and, 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 and and then specifically what pro-lifers and Christians need to do in deep blue States, uh, like California, where I live Clark, where they're, they're turning into a sanctuary sanctuary state for abortion. Yeah. In in four minutes, go for it. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Uh, well, let me start with the legal landscape. I mean, the States since 1973, many States have never kind of rested. Uh, they've been, fighting uh, against the court's decision in Roe versus Wade year after year after year. And uh, so there's a long history that shows many states like Nebraska and Missouri um, and you know Alabama and Mississippi and Texas have been fighting in the legislative sessions year by year to keep Roe unsettled and to protect women uh, from the risks of abortion and unborn children uh, as much as possible. Uh, given the obstacle of the Supreme Court and the federal courts. Yeah. So uh, there's, a, there's a good long history showing how much the states have done. And so today, um, uh, there, there are still a lot of laws on the books limiting abortion. Uh, and in the last several years, I would say since 2010, the states have gotten, many states have gotten even more aggressive in passing stronger right. and strong limits. You'll yeah. remember the, the court the Supreme Court upheld the Federal partial Birth Abortion Ban Act in, in 2007. And starting in 2010, um, uh, 22 or three states have passed 20week limits. And then uh, coming closer, the, uh, the states after say 2016 started p- passing limits at heartbeat at fetal heartbeat. Right. Um Alabama passed a law even prohibiting abortion from conception, I think it was 2019. So if Roe versus Wade is overturned, basically the issue goes back to the states, yes. and the states may be able to enforce whatever is on the books. The states right. could the state legislatures could adopt new legislation, but if Roe was overturned today, tomorrow, the states could enforce what's on their books. Right. Subject to things like state court in- interference, so um, I mean the bottom line is that um, um, uh, you know Christians need to be involved in the in the state legislatures. They yeah. need to be politically involved um, because it's no longer going to be if Rose overturned in Dobbs, it's no longer going to be um, the courts controlling the issue, the Supreme Court controlling the issue as it as it's done since '73. The people we elect in our state capitals, they're gonna be the primary decision makers. So our vote is gonna mean something. And so we need to be involved with pregnancy care centers. Pregnancy care centers are gonna be on the front lines after the Dobbs decision. Oh, yeah. Because even if the court, you know, I, I wouldn't say I expect the court to overturn Roe, but I expect the court to hand more authority back to the states and give more deference to the states at the very least. And I would expect the court to upheld, uphold this 15-week limit. And that means uh, more women are going to be seeking services and help, and um, pregnancy care centers are going to be uh, uh, needing to give more services and more care and more outreach. And then public officials are going to be on the front lines too. Um, the state governor, the state attorney general, Uh, State legislators are going to be the ones making the legal and legislative decisions, and we need to be there to support them in protecting life.
0: That's right. Uh, Clark, I just keynoted the Oklahoma City Pregnancy Center uh, banquet recently, and they mentioned that they've seen their traffic double, um, if not more recently, because women are coming from Texas because of their um, heartbeat uh, or detectable heartbeat legislation Um, And so they're saving more children. Now, some of those women came there for abortion, but they found themselves in the doors of the pregnancy center, Mm -hmm. got an ultrasound, and ended up choosing life. And so these wonderful centers who have so often been maligned by the secular culture and have been abandoned by the shepherds and the pastors who do very little to actually support these centers in their town that are saving babies are going to be more important and needed than ever before. Um, And we certainly, if we don't support them now, Um, I I don't know um, when we will. This is the most propitious moment um, for us to tear down abortion and begin protecting the unborn child. Last question for you, uh, Clark. Um, What is your diagnosis um, as a political strategist um, for a personhood amendment in the future, for a, a legal recognition that we don't need a personhood amendment because the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence already say right to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, no one can be deprived of these. Um, what 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 is your comments or diagnosis on pursuing that strategy in the future Because we understand, of course, as pro-lifers, that justice is not the um, the the uh, the Douglas Lincoln Lincoln Douglas justice of uh, each state has the right to vote it up or down. Stephen Douglas, like, let each state decide whether slavery is allowed or not. That that could be where we're at later this year. Each state getting to decide their abortion laws. Justice would, of course, be federal protections for the unborn child. I know that's a big question, but what are your comments on that in terms of pursuing that when we have our reins, a hands on the reins of political power again?
1: Well, uh, first of all, um, we have to understand that uh, this court is, uh, if, it, if it overturns Roe, it's going to do so in in the sense of returning the issue to the states. This court, uh, as as was made clear on December 1st, is not considering uh, a federal personhood rationale or a 14th Amendment personhood rationale. They're they're, they're considering whether to return the issue to the states where it was for 200 years before 1973. Um, But uh, in in my opinion, if if the cause for life in America wants a constitutional amendment, Uh, or or once constitutional protection at the federal level for the unborn, it's going to have to pass a new uh, uh, amendment, write a new carefully written amendment and pass it uh, through the states. And that means 38 states are going to have to come together to support such an amendment. And that means that all the work that's been done in the states up to now, is going to be essential to creating 38 states that are pro-life and that are willing to pass such an amendment. So all the work that's been done since the 1960s in the states is crucial to um, creating uh, 38 states that will support such an amendment. I mean, as I mentioned, we've got 31 states now that have a fetal homicide law from conception. We have to think of State by state, year by year, politically and legislatively, getting to thirty-eight states that'll protect, that'll that'll create uh, an amendment or support an amendment at the federal level. But um, you know, uh, between now and then, uh, we have to be working in the states, uh, in in social conditions, in legislative and political conditions, uh, to to work every state state by state to make them as pro-life as possible. And uh, so we all need to be involved. Um, we all need to be involved and, and active and vigorous.
0: Amen. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Clark. Uh, you guys, uh, yes. Americans United for Life, AUL.org, uh, I believe, has uh, wonderful resources and information regarding these legislative attempts in uh, summaries of legislative victories at the state level. Uh, check out American United for Life. Uh, make sure you pick up Clark's book, Abuse of Discretion, The Inside Story of Roe versus Wade, um, wherever you get your books. Uh, you know, educate yourself, equip yourself in this season uh, to defend life. Um, and, and at the lay, uh, church level, make sure that you're having these conversations with your pastors um, and asking them to get on the front lines as the church and Christians will be needed more than ever before um, as states begin to protect pass protections for the unborn or we live in states like california where we are not currently able to pass protections for the unborn and the church will also be needed more than ever before clark thank you so much for your time brother thanks for joining the show
1: thank you seth god bless you and thank you for your work absolutely
0: yeah we'll see you soon thank you guys for joining the show today head on over to itunes spotify youtube give the show a rating and review leave us five stars share this episode um, with squishy conservatives who say they're pro-choice and don't understand the history or the arguments share it with your pro-choice friends and check out american united for life we'll put all of their organization's information in the show notes if you want to book me for an event or see my speaking schedule to come hear me speak live and local go to sethgruber.com s-c-t-h-g-r-u-b as in baby boy e-r Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted.